Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. It's been a two-week break. I, we apologize for that. I was away on holiday in Nigeria and that's why we couldn't, for the podcast, we apologize. Once again, co-hosting with me is Phoenix and we have two guests today. Our first guest is William. William is a policy analyst with Myra Metrics. Myra Metrics is a Nigerian business and financial advisory firm. Our second guest is Samuel. Samuel is a policy analyst in Abuja with the International Budget Partnership. Now, the three stories we'll be discussing today are firstly, the Abba Kiari scandal. Abba Kiari was a senior police officer described as a super cop who seems to have been embroiled in the hosh poppy scandal. The second story we'll be discussing is the offer by the Nigerian Petroleum Corporation, the NNPC, to buy 20% of Aliko Dangote's refinery. And thirdly, we'll discuss Nigeria's performance of the Olympics, uh, the political aspects, um, and also the uh, legal and other issues involved. Now to our first story, Abakiari. Uh, Phoenix, what, what, what happened? We, Hosh Poppy was arrested for fraud in the United States. We thought that case was going on smoothly, and then Abakiri gets dragged in. Can you, can you talk us through how, how did how did he get involved? How did he get tied in this in this mess? Hi everyone, um, glad to be back, and uh, thanks um, Atiku and William for joining us. Michael, it's great to have you back. You know what? I was half hoping that uh, you'd be snagged by the secret police on this your trip to Nigeria and give us some small street cred, but looks like you found a way to escape. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but I mean, good segue into this uh, this Super Cup Abakiari guy. I mean, it, it, the Nigerian police force is a, is a, is a cesspit of name it. I mean, we, we know what happened last year with the NSAS protests and 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 all of that. So it, it, it's good that these kind of things are coming to light. And uh, I mean, if we talk about how did it happen, you know, what, once, once uh, Hush Poppy was picked up, you knew it was only a matter of time before he started singing. And of course, that's, that's what's happened. Um, at the point in time when he was picked up, we knew that there were quite a number of things that he had done um and therefore it was not just one particular act that that he was caught up in this particular fraud case that has roped in abakiari apparently did not even happen in the us although the proceeds found their way to the us and i think that's how uh the fbi got involved because they they now um of course have charges of wire fraud and money laundering because two of hush poppies um associates um, were the ones who were collecting the cash via the US banks and, and then finding ways to launder the money and get them to get the money to Hosh Poppy and, and, his, and his acolytes. Um, Hosh Poppy therefore named Abakiari as, as their hired muscle. He was the one that uh, took one of their acolytes that decided to turn, turn against them when of course they were <laughs> There's no honor among thieves. They were going to cut the guy out of out of his share, and the guy decided to let the mark that apparently a Qatari businessman know that these guys were were defrauding him. And so Hush Poppy reaches out to Abakiari, as the story goes, to get this guy out of circulation. Abakiari says okay, and then arrests this guy locks him up for a, for a number of weeks so that they could complete their, their action. And once that was done, money got shared. Mr. Kiari got his share, and that's why he's now a, a person of interest for the U.S. law enforcement uh, agencies. It now remains to be seen how far the U.S. wants to take it. Uh, an international arrest warrant has been issued. We, we now need to see if they actually contact the Nigerian government to have him extradited or not, and then we'll see how that drama unfolds. But you see, it's it's a spectacular fall from grace, and I think it's long overdue, because there's a litany of, 
of issues that have been trading this particular Abakiari chap, but he's built up such a persona that uh, I, I think now his uh, his cup was full, as we say in our in our part of the world. But that's that's the long and short of the story, and uh, yeah, let's take it from there. Thank you, Phoenix. I need to bring in uh, Samuel to shed light because Samuel, as, as Phoenix has said, he said uh, the United States government has requested that Abakiri be handed over to the U.S. authorities, and the ball is now in the court of the Nigerian government. So, in your view, Samuel, do you think uh, Buhari and the Attorney General Malami are going to hand him over, or do you think there will be some uh, uh, maneuverings to prevent it from happening? That's a that's a complex question. Going into the head of um, of the president to really understand how he thinks. Of course, the logical thing any reasonable individual will have done is to actually put the country first. Uh, and when you're putting the country first, you have to ensure that you show the world that a country like Nigeria will not tolerate. I mean, tolerate. Uh, law I mean, the highest level of crime that can be committed in a community is people that are actually um, or sub the power to actually preserve law when they begin to use those powers. Of course, they call it high crimes. Uh, that's the highest level of crime that you can commit in a community. So Kiari himself actually did commit crime. He used the power and the authority, the Nigerian people, through the president and through the National Assembly, I gave to him, gave to the Nigerian police force, and then used that for his own personal gain. Uh, and then to, of course, help and enable crime. And when that happens, of course, you have to show the world that this is not the way to go. This is not an attitude, a culture we, thought we will tolerate in Nigeria. And then the ideal thing for you to do is to actually put him to test and in putting him to test is to actually let him face, of course, it's crime. I'm not saying it's, um, of course, I'm not saying it's um, guilty. Uh, of course, you, you always presume to be innocent until you're proven uh, guilty. But that said, uh, if you go deep into the Nigerian system, this is a common culture within the Nigerian police. In fact, of recent, a church, Actually, people in the church protesting and then you incarcerate them for how many days? I mean, what crime did they commit? Is it trespassing? If you trespass on people's property, does that give you authority to actually incarcerate the person for, I mean, for 30 days? In this country, you hear incidents of people that have been incarcerated maybe for bashing people's car. They pick them up and they lock them up for maybe one year, two years. Um, we've had this. There was a time I remember in Jaws, I went to a prison in Jaws, and then I was trying to actually talk to uh, those are my early days of actually. I was very curious then to know why people are in the prison. So I would go there doing my doing the NYC days to actually speak to prisoners. And then you'll be shocked uh, when you go into prison. I mean, when you go to prisons, when you discover funny, funny reasons why people have been remanded in prison for years. And uh, so it's a culture that the Nigerian police force had. Uh, they, they are known for that. I mean, you can go to the police force, pay them money, and then they they use they use tools and many other things to act. They incarcerate. In fact, if somebody is owing you money, just go to the Nigerian police force. <laughs> they will collect a percentage from you, and then they will incarcerate somebody uh, for for years, if possible, or even days, and then force the person to commit to pay. So that's a tactic we've always used in Nigeria. Uh, but now that it has been brought to um, uh, to the world, I mean, the world is now seeing what is happening. We hope that the president um, will, and when I say hope, I know what I'm talking about. We hope he will actually allow logic take its course, um, rather than actually look closely at other issues and then decide to put Nigeria in jeopardy, and then of course protect one man. I think. Let me pause there. Thank you, Samuel. I, I note that you said you hope Buhari will do. The right thing. Uh, I will ask uh, William if, if you can hear me, William. Um, the, the question for you is, uh, Phoenix touched on it a bit when he said the, the, the man himself, Kiari, seems to have a reputation and there have been a litany of complaints even before this hospital drama that 
he had been abusing his powers. Now, knowing Buhari's antecedents and seeing how the Ensar's uh, uh, massacres and uh, crisis evolved, are you, are you optimistic that Buhari will do the right thing, uh, William? Personally, I don't, I don't, I don't expect Abakir to be extradited because when you have, the thing about looking at Buhari, you, Buhari is the kind of person you don't look through like regular logical senses, one. Number one thing, two, is you have Buhari is an Everybody knows this. Secondly, those um, Kiari share same ethnicity with Wari, perhaps. You have to look at it too. And you have to look at the boards that are scripted because now you are, we're having a situation where Norton groups are giving um, communiques. I think Mietiala has also gotten involved. When it has level, just know that we are dealing with but William, you seem to be cutting out. It seems your your Wi-Fi connection is poor. William, can you hear me? Your your Wi-Fi seems to be cutting out. Okay, I think we've lost the. Uh, oh. William, do you mind holding because your Wi-Fi is cutting out. I'll come to Phoenix and then come back to you. Maybe it would have, it would have, it would have fixed itself by then. So need to do what they want to do. And William, I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me, William? We just have to lose hope for the best. Uh, can I can hear you guys. I can hear your, you. Your Wi-Fi seems to be cutting out. I'm, we're not, I'm not quite sure why. So if you pause, I'll go to Phoenix and then come back to you, hopefully to be better then. So Phoenix, I was going to ask William this question because you raised it and talked about the antecedents of Abakiri and how people have been complaining about himself and his team in the past. So in, in your view, do you think Buhari is going to take this seriously or is this just going to be him ignoring it? I, I mean, if I if I look at Buhari and how he's acted in the past, I, I don't expect him to take it seriously. Or let me put it this way. I don't expect him to respond to calls from people to do what any sane society would say is the right thing. Um, we've seen we've seen how he's acted in the past with um, uh, Babacher David Lawa. Um, who looted IDP funds, of course, they, they shunted him out of of Asorok, but he's walking free. Nobody has prosecuted him, and and so many others. Uh, I mean, that we can that we can call on. So, we, do I expect him to to hold this guy um, to account? I, I I mean, if 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 I was a betting man, I would I'll bet the other way and say he'll probably find a way to to uh, to unlook this and and. Worst case scenario, maybe they they repost him to somewhere else in the police, or let him go and cool off for some time, and then you just see him resurface. But I don't, I do not expect Buhari to to come down heavy. This is somebody who has a high profile, and and I think William was even alluding to it. We're already seeing the likes of Mieti Allah and some other um, people making it into an ethnic thing. I mean, jumping to his defense as a northerner and saying, because for them, he's a leading light. He's somebody who has this toga of having accomplished a lot. He's been commended by Buhari in the past for being a, a gallant and very brave and uh, uh, very uh, efficient, proficient uh, police officer. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a star of the force. So... I mean, I, I wait to see if the US will truly make a request for him to be extradited, which may end up forcing Buhari's hand. Um, but, if, but if that doesn't happen and it becomes a back channel, just discussion thing, I, I would not be surprised if they sweep it under the carpet and he resurfaces maybe six months from now in some other post. And I mean, that, that would just be it. He's suspended now. They will come out with their reports 
he will they will find some way to justify it and uh, it will now be up to whether the US government decides to put pressure or not but if i look to buhari and how he's handled things of this nature when it's people like this people of northern extraction people who he deems um you know who who he, who he has you know give um, seen in a good light before it is more than likely that he will try to defend it or protect him, let me put it that way. Thank you, Phoenix. You seem more, you seem a bit pessimistic. My, my own view is that the Buhari I know will only do what benefits him. So I think if he comes under intense pressure from the Americans and it affects some interest he has, he will willingly hand over Kieri because mm -hmm. the, the Buhari I know is, is, is self-centered. So he doesn't, he doesn't, he will. So if Kieri becomes a major obstacle, I think he'll hand him over. I was agree with that because I mean that's what I was saying that if 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 the US decide that no we want to make a formal request for this guy absolutely he will give him up but if that doesn't come through you'll find a way to just because he Buari also doesn't want to be seen note that he never wants to be seen to be buckling under pressure oh I mean the southern press the, the I mean all those intellectual people are making noise on Twitter they say you should have this guy's head he will refuse to listen to that. But yes, you're right. He is more likely to listen if the US puts pressure. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know if, William, if you can hear me now. Uh, Phoenix answered the question I was going to ask you. So my the other question I was going to ask you about this whole uh, saga is, what is it about the police force? Because... The stories seem normal to Nigerians when we read about the kind of things uh, he was alleged to do. But to foreigners, I'm sure they're wondering what on earth is going on. Why is a police officer receiving money direct to his account to detain people? Why is, how did Abakiari even meet uh, Hosh Poppy in the first place? Like, what kind of weird relationship do, do the Nigerian police have with uh, citizens? Uh, William? William, are you there? Oh, God. I'm here. Can you hear me now? Okay, we can hear you now, William. That's good. We can hear you now, William. Oh, I don't know why you guys couldn't hear me before. Um, anyways, Michael actually said what I was going to say until I went off. He said everything I wanted to say, really. Is it? The easiest way for an outsider to understand it literally, literally is to find like the closest library that has the history of colonialism in Nigeria, first of all, and see how the British ran the um, colonial police and how Nigeria just continued that culture of very poor, harsh, cruel um, culture of cruelty in the sense that I think we later rewarded this culture of you seem to be cutting out again, really. fast. You have to pay your. William, you're cutting out again. I think your Wi Fi, I don't think it's going to work. Well, William. I don't know if you can hear me, William. Uh, your connection is poor. We can't seem to hear you at all. And let's cycle. We got to. Let me see. My... Uh, let me bring in Samuel. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, let me bring you in because we literally cannot hear William. So the, the question for you, Samuel, is. The police culture, can you, because I know you're, you're a policy analyst, so can you talk us through this? What, how has it come about that people are able to transfer 8 million naira to a police officer to say, arrest my friend, and the officer just does it without doing the basic due diligence? How did we get to this with the Nigerian police force? <laughs> you're telling me to take apart the Nigerian police force. I've always made this big argument that one of the biggest organized crime, I'll call it syndicate in the world is the Nigerian police force. From the training ground, 
if you are privileged to go to Ikeja Police uh, Training College, on that training ground, uh, the person leading the training already indulge in social activities. You, in fact, you'll be so shocked that when they're on parade and it's raining, uh, the policeman will classically tell them to go and raise 10,000 within themselves before he releases them. Uh, if you've been at NYC camp before, you see some of those elements, but it's not very pronounced because it's NYC. But when you go to the when you go to police college, that's essentially what happens. So even within the training center itself, the culture of corruption with impunity had been embarging there. And that explains why a policeman will directly receive, receive money into his own account because he knows nobody. Nobody will actually take time to look at his account. He doesn't care. If we go down memory lane, and you remember doing Obasan Justinian, that this IG, what's his name, Tafa Balogun. Tafa Balogun was removed because of, it was not on the street collecting money. The money was remitted, of course, to his account. And of course, one way or the other, the Nigerian government just covered up what happened to Tafa Balogun because it will have taking down a whole lot of police um, officers at that time. I can assure you that if you go to every police station in Nigeria, every police station, and I mean it by that, every police station in Nigeria, there is corruption going on at every of those police stations. And how do I know this? If you dive deep into the budget and you look at how much had been allocated for patrol, that's to power the admin, to fuel cars, it's ridiculously very, very low that I can assure you that no police car can run in Nigeria for one week if we are to go by that. But why, how, how come they keep running? It shows that, of course, they are using proceeds of corruption to keep the engine running. So where am I going? Why am I saying this? One, why do, how do we get there? One, the police force is not designed, the Nigerian police force, sorry, is not necessarily designed to protect Nigeria. It's designed to protect the regime. And that explains why one third of Nigerian police personnel are actually doing protection services. They are protecting politicians. If you go to houses of politicians, they even do shifts. Some of them sit down. In fact, I live in an estate. Of course, I'm not going to name the estate. In that estate, you see some big man live very close by. Every night, uh, they always do shifts. You have policemen about five, 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 they come in shifts. Within the estate, if there's a crime incident, they will not even look at that side. It's not their business. Their business is to protect the person paying them, right? So that's the culture. So if you do anything to this man, of course, he used the police to torment people around him. And nobody would complain to you. Go to the, you go to the DP or who do you want to complain to? So before you know it, of course, um, William was actually uh, laying the case that if you look at the colonial system, the police, the mentality is like you're protecting somebody. And as such, it metamorphosed into what we have now. So what we have is just replacing the colonial leaders with some top politicians, some rich politicians. I mean, rich, I'll call Nigeria, te technically, if you are rich in Nigeria, you're a politician. And so I'll call them rich politician or politically connected individuals. So the police is designed to protect them. So they use that police force to do anything. And because these people are corrupt themselves, and the police understand that they are corrupt. So when the police themselves get into corrupt issues, of course, corruption issues are related. Of course, they find a way of covering that. So to end this statement, during the NSAS protest, people were legitimately calling for one thing, just reform the police. But they would rather kill people than reform the police force. That tells you the all you need to know. The Nigerian government will rather kill people at Lekito Gate and across the country and cover it up than reform the police force. That tells you essentially that this is not even a, is, we are not talking about the corruption in the police force. We are talking about an epidemic of corruption that had engulfed the Nigerian state. And we need to begin to rebuild it back. I've always said that the only way out of this uh, cold mile is actually to pull down the Nigerian police and actually have state police and ensure that those elements that you find Nigerian police never I mean, metamorphose into state police system. I think let me pause here and allow other people to talk. Thank you, uh, Samuel. You've basically, yeah, you've hit the nail on the, the, the head. It's, it's truly shocking that, as you said, the budget for fueling police cars is, is not enough. So if, if police cars are being fueled 
that it's either we're engaging in magic or the money is obviously coming from corrupt means. Let me make one final attempt to speak to William. That's if uh, his Wi-Fi will allow. Um, William, the question for, for you is, um, there's a bit of irony here because Kiari used to be head of the, I think, NSARS division in Lagos. And that division was being, had been the number one division attacked for abusing the rights of poor Nigerians. So isn't it ironic that he's now under fire again, would you say? Uh, William, are you there? I think we've I think we've lost uh, William. We're just going to have to. I think William. I, I think your Wi-Fi is is not is not allowing us. I think it's 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 not working. Okay. I think we'll move on to our next topic then because we we literally can't hear you, William. So the next issue is Dangote. Dangote has all the has been engaged in negotiations with the Nigerian government. And they've offered to buy 20% of his refinery for a price of $2.76 billion. And it was approved at the last Federal Executive Council meeting on the 4th of August. Now, Phoenix, the, the first question to you is, we were told that this refinery was going to be completed. Initially, I'm sure they said it was going to be done sometime after 2015. It became sometime in 2019. And now it's still not ready, and he's offering to sell 20% to the Nigerian government. So what is going on, Phoenix? Well, there's no doubt that uh, it's, it's, it's massively uh, delayed. I mean, no doubt about that. So, um, and, and there have been stories about, you know, um, poor delivery by, by, by those who've been working with him on it. There have also been stories about a, a cash crunch. I'm sure the pandemic didn't help um, uh, as well. So, I mean, what, I mean that would explain why there's been there's been delays. That would explain why um, he'll be looking to sell. Um, but I mean, the other the other thing you also hear is it seems like it's the Nigerian government, uh, the M NMPC, that is particularly keen. Uh, to buy in to to his uh, refinery, um, which I mean is is not strange in a certain way if you if you follow this government and and their economic thinking. I mean, it's no it's no for those who've I mean heard me talk about this government and and how they think in economic terms. It will be no surprise that I've, I've always said from as far back as 2016 that this is a status government. Um, you see it in their fiscal policies. You see it in how um, they influence monetary policy and exchange rate policy. Everything is, they prefer to, con to, to be controlled by the state. And so I, I'm not surprised that, and especially when it concerns oil. Oil is like um, Buhari's... Um, how would I put it? That, that, that's like his number one fantasy in this world. He believes so much in oil that everything begins and ends with oil and FX for him. So I'm not surprised that for them, it, they, they see it as being of strategic importance that they have a stake in this thing that they believe will be successful. And because of the sheer size, they believe will have an influence. Now, when I was thinking about about when I heard for the first time that they were going to buy this, I wanted I wanted to even give them a benefit of doubt, right? To say, I mean, what's the why behind it, right? Why are they interested in doing this, and what do they intend to achieve? And so then you go to the um, reasoning that they've given. So when asked, the MD of NMPC tells us that it's for energy security and fiscal security. And I'm like, <laughs> that's that's strange to me because if if you're saying it's for energy security, no government needs to buy a stake in a company for you to 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 have energy security, or to say that I mean I mean I must have a stake in this company as a government 
as a sovereign nation before I can control it. We've, we know that, that that's unnecessary. Nigeria has no stake in any of the telecoms companies, but it doesn't stop them from snapping their fingers and, and making them jump. So in, that, that puts in a lie to that. And in any case, if you felt that it was important for you to, to have a stake, a, a stake, then you should go for a controlling stake or something. I mean, with your 20% and probably one seat on the board, what are you going to do? What if, if you are truly going to use that as a means to influence or to have, to have a say? That's not going to give you enough influence. So it, it just reeks again of, of number one, this overreach by the state without a, a, a without any economic sense. Number two, it it's it also shows that it's not well thought thought through. Is either they're trying to help this guy out with with some funding, or somebody feels like, look, we need to find a way to feather our own nest and, and put something in. Because then the next thing that then comes to my mind was valuation. So how did you determine the valuation? And is, is, it, is it the right valuation for, for a refinery that has not refined one, one liter of, of um, oil crude oil? And so you then look for a proxy and say, if you're telling me that as of today, you're valuing it at 19 billion. Which, which is what I've, which is the number I've seen. Although when they say 20% and 2.7, it doesn't quite add up to 19 billion. But let's let's play around with that. So I'm looking for another for a proxy and saying, okay, what are, what company can I compare it to that I can use a, a, a widely available valuation? So I stumble on Marathon Petroleum, which is a massive refining and marketing uh, company in the U.S. Marathon refines. 3 million barrels of oil per day. We know that uh, Dangote is going to be doing about 650. So, so they're doing like five times what, what about five times what he's planning to do. They also have not only refining, they also have, um, what's it called? A marketing arm that has about 12,000 gas stations across North America. So it's a much bigger company, no doubt about it. Marathon's market capitalization is about $37 billion. So when I take that and I take you that will refine 20% of their output and you do not have a marketing arm that they have with all those assets and you then tell me you're only 50% of the market capitalization of, of a marathon, it begins to tell me that there's, there, there's some funny games like we always expect in the Nigerian, in the Nigerian uh, space, space. So, I mean, it's, I mean they've, they've decided to do it. They will do it. I mean, it, it, it makes no sense to me when I look at it, especially considering the, the reasoning they gave. And we'll just see how, how it all unfolds. Again, in two years, there'll be a new government. Who knows what that new government will be about? And I'm sure by then we'll begin to hear stories. But to your first question, this refinery is long overdue. And as of now, it doesn't even look like it's going to be due anytime soon. It just adds to the intrigue around all of this. Thank you, Phoenix. One of the questions you raised, what I'm going to ask Samuel. Samuel, Phoenix has talked about the question of the valuation. How did they arrive at 2.76 billion for 20%? Do you know, Samuel? And that's a, that's a big question. Uh, there, of course, um, if we look, if we, if we try to dive deep into um, the financials, right, we try to look at financials and then the whole context of asset valuation, you will typically approach it using three methods. The first one is the sales comparative method. That means as, as, as somebody sold a brand new refinery in recent history of similar capacity and at what price, and then use that vis-a-vis uh, -vis comparing with what Dangote has done. The second approach is what Phoenix just did. That's, um, that's actually using what they call the, um, I mean, sorry, <laughs> don't mind me, I'm already, I'm, maybe I'm growing old around these financial issues. They typically will call that second method, um, they will call it the costing method, um, which looks at the cost itself of building a refinery. And then you try to say, okay, this is the cost 10 billion and then, 
you can now say 20% of it comes down to about um, $2 billion and then you give 20% based on that. And then the third is make, I mean, you typically look at other metrics, look at um, what you call market capitalization and then try to actually phantom it out. The first problem I have with this is lack of transparency. Um, there is no transparency whatsoever. So how did you arrive at your 20, the 2 billion? As some profit be phantoming, what is happening? What is the thinking behind this? How will it be funded? What has been this? So generally, if we look at Dangote's business interest, and then you take a dive, I mean, you take a deep look at what has happened. Most of the primary cost. So if it says it's building um, this cement factory, if you look at the cost implication, about 60% of the cost of building those refineries are actually financial based. They are not necessarily the cost of building those facility. Uh, okay, you take loan at 30% or you take loan at 15% and then the interest rate accumulates and then you build everything into the general cost of uh, building what you are building. I think that's one of the biggest challenge I have. Now, let me just um, pause here first. I'll come back to this point and then take a dive back to history. Imagine in 1913, when the world was moving around with us and then you have a government that presumes and takes 20% of, of, of the country's income and then say, we are going to invest 20% of our country's income to actually build all stables. And then you have some economists nodding along and saying it makes a whole lot of sense. When Ford, meanwhile, had actually automated production of um, uh, combustion, I mean, internal combustion engine cars, and they were one way or the other, they are becoming the sheep and then people are picking it up. What would be the key question that you ask? The truth is that the government, government is primarily doing that to protect the interest of those people that own horses. 2021, more like 2013. Globally, if you look at the European Union, I mean, a few days ago, the American president was laying out his plan to ensure that 50% of new cars that are being sold in the United States needs to be electric powered. The future of hydrocarbon, as we have it today, is in question. I'm not saying the future of crude oil, fossil fuel is in question, but the usage of yields for powering cars is in question. The primary reason why Nigerian crude is being, I mean, the biggest take of Nigerian crude is India. They convert it primarily to power cars. That's what they use it for. And then you look at China, what they use it for is primarily to power their cars. That's why Nigeria is relevant as it were. These countries and the world itself is moving away technically from that space. And they're actually saying, okay, we're going to do EVs. 2035, the US government is saying that 50%, um, they are having a target of 50% of the cars that will be brown new cars that will be sold in the US needs to be actually electric vehicles. Uh, European Union, the UK government, everybody's actually even placing ban, total ban on the sales of PMS powered cars as early as 2030. I think in Norway, 2024, they start banning these sales of this car. Essentially, what it means is that the future of Dangote's refinery is in question. So, how do you pre preserve it? One, you need to actually cash out as fast as possible. And who is the best? How do you cash out? when you know you've made a very big blunder in terms of investment decision, is to look at an incompetent government and sell them a, a big fat. And an incompetent government will buy the faith. And that's essentially what is happening. How can the government of Nigeria, with a revenue of about 3 trillion, people are living in poverty, right? Everything seems to be falling apart. We can't even secure the country. The whole country seems to be falling apart. That government takes 25% of your annual income, right? <laughs> we make about 3 trillion. If you look at it essentially, 2 point something trillion, that's about 1 trillion, right? You take that money and then you hand it over to Dangote to be the refinery to do what, what are you trying to do? You are essentially giving Dangote the money to cash out because he understands that his business concept, the concept around this refinery is flawed from the point go. Um, if Paradventure, it's a gas to liquid facility that is being constructed. It makes a whole lot of sense that government is actually trying to booster, I'll call it the gas industry. I will say, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Now, to 
cut this off and then go aside. I mean, Phoenix did mention that the thinking of government. If you recall, uh, before now, we have the economic recovery growth plan of government. That's the plan of government. That plan had been jettisoned. We have a new plan now, which they call the medium term national development plan, running from 2021 to 2025. And then they have a medium term national development plan running from 2026 to 2030. If you look at that plan, I've seen the plan, they label some sectors as high growth sector and they call it close. And I can read them, them down to you. One, agriculture, food security, and rural development. That's in high growth sector in Nigeria. Two, housing and urban development. Of course, that makes a whole lot of sense. Three, digital economy, bioeconomy, science, technology, and innovation. Of course, it could make a whole lot of sense. The fourth one is culture, tourism, creative industry, and hospitality. Of course, there are question marks around that, whether that makes an high growth sector. The fifth one, <laughs> everybody, it's actually oil and gas. The Nigerian government is building our economic plan 2021 to 2030 on the presumption that oil and gas will continue to be an high growth sector. I, as a policy analyst, I mean, I've looked at development plan of close to about 60 countries, 60 development. I can tell you categorically today that Nigeria happened to be the only country that put oil and gas as an high growth sector. And that shows the level of incompetence that goes into economic thinking in this country. And that explains why you would take your 2.5, 2. something billion dollars at end fund and then put it into a sector that will be dead in less than 10 years. I mean, I, I think let me just read my case here before I begin to say things that will land me in a DSS cell. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Samuel, for shedding light. I think you've made an important point. The world is moving away from fossil fuels and trying to be more energy efficient. And that's the point at which Nigeria is doubling down and spending scarce billions trying to support a refinery. Uh, let me go to William to see if uh, his connection works this time. And William, the, the question is, the the decision to invest in Dangote refinery was made by the Federal Executive Council, made up of many, some would say intelligent people, like the Vice President, uh, Babatunde Fashola, who's the uh, Works and Housing Minister. So the, the question is, is it that all these people did their own independent analysis and concluded that this was the best way to, to spend $2.76 billion, William? Hello, I hope you guys can hear me now. Oh, yes, we can hear you now. Oh, perfect. Um, one thing you need to know about the FEC is that it's a yes-man club. They don't, there's a, they don't ask where the money comes from. They just approve it. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Now, recently, they approved the $11.17 billion Lagos to Calabario, and nobody has talked about funding. This is the same FEC that had to like, um, that has gone around looking for alternative funding for the Meiduguri Porta Court Rail because there was a news of the whole standard chartered stuff and all that. I don't know if you've heard about it. So basically, the FEC is not there to do constant. And just hold the clothing. So it's something as long as it has reached their table, it's approved. Financing comes later, that's not their problem. Do you understand? Look, thank you, Phoenix. You seem to be, uh, William, you seem to be cutting out again. I think uh, there's clearly an issue with your Wi Fi. Oh, Can you hear me, William? William, your, your connection is poor. I can hear you perfectly. I was asking. Wow. No, the... Okay, let's, let's try again, William, one more time. Let's, let's one final time. Let's see if we can work. So you were saying something about the uh, fact that no qualitative analysis seems to be done by people in the FEC. William, are you there? Okay. We'll just we'll just have to call it a day and move to Phoenix. It seems your your internet 
it's not going to work today. So we'll just move to Phoenix. So Phoenix, the question I was going to ask William, which I'm going to direct at you is this idea of the FPC analyzing issues because okay. Uh, William? Yeah, can you, can you hear me now? Oh, yes, we can hear you now, uh, William. Let's see. Just We'll just try one more time. If it doesn't work, then we'll just move to Phoenix. No, I'll, uh, so I was about sending a message. I was saying that the FEC doesn't do any quantitative analysis of anything. As long as it reaches their table, most times they just approve. Then whoever, it's the minister in charge of, uh, the minister of the agency in charge of that area that does the financing or whoever, or the minister of finance that has to worry about the financing. So it's, it has never been the area to ask where, where would the financing come from for any project. Okay, no, thank you, William. Uh, I'll just go to Phoenix because I, I can see your connection is going again. So Phoenix, the, the, the question is, Buhari is not even in the country. So it is the vice president who is presiding over this Federal Executive Council meeting. They've presented this uh, pr proposal to him. Are you telling me that between himself, uh, Fashollah, uh, Timmy Silva, the Petroleum Minister, Rotimi Amechi, it hadn't occurred to, occurred to them that this seemed to be a very dangerous or, or unwise investment decision, Phoenix? I, I, can't, I can't speak to whether it has occurred to them or not, but what I know is Buhari is also uh, the Minister for Petroleum. So at the end of the day, it's his, it's largely his decision. He's Minister for Petroleum and he's the president. And we also know that on this particular trip, he did not hand over to Oshibaju. Uh, so it's not as if uh, Oshibaju as acting president can, can veto this or say that uh, this cannot go ahead. This is not to absolve him. I mean, he's been part of the government for six years. So as far as I'm concerned, he, he's also part of this uh, of the inane policies that they continue to pass. But like I was saying earlier, I, I mean, this is right up their street. And this is, this is, uh, this has Buhari and his acolytes, uh, their, their fingerprints all over it. I mean, it is, it is something that, I mean, I, I don't put past them. And if, if, the, if Buhari um, and his inner caucus have decided that this is something they want to do, of course they will do it. So, the FEC, I think, to the point that William was making, is just a, is most more, more often than not a rubber stamp, just to say that yes, the the entire federation. I mean, the FEC is essentially the the federal government and the states. Um, I mean, sorry, the federal executive council is no, sorry, I'm mixing them up now. The national exec, national executive council is the federal government and the state. The FEC is the is the federal government itself. So the president, the vice president, and the ministers, which means nobody's going to say anything against uh, uh, Buhari's uh, call. So if, if that's what the president and minister for petroleum um, thinks is right, of course, they're going to say yes. So I'm not surprised that this, this passed. Thank you, Phoenix. Yes. Thank you for highlighting the, the fact that Buhari is actually the minister for petroleum. Um, I know the spotlight tends to be on Timmy Presilva, but Buhari is actually the one in charge. He's, uh, well, he's cleverly hidden that part, so people focus on other people, not him. Okay. We'll move to our final topic today, which is the Olympics. Uh, Nigeria went. Uh, there seemed to be embarrassment all around. There were rumors that uh, the Samsung phones given to them by the sponsors were seized by athletics officials, and there were allegations or there were the, a number of Nigerian sportsters were disqualified because they did not meet the testing requirements. And then there's, a, there's, a dis, there's the fact that our performance was dismal. We only got two medals, I think one silver and one bronze, and they were both from the female teams. The men delivered nothing. So firstly to uh, Samuel, a no number of people have said the sports minister, Sunday Dari, should resign for, his, for the shambolic performance of the team. Do you agree that he should resign, Samuel? <laughs> Sunday Diary should resign. I think the first thing we need to look at the role that the minister played. 
I remember probably before this, the uh, basketball team actually suffered almost similar fate. A sponsor did donate uh, some kit and some equipment, uh, some sport equipment, of course, to the team. This equipment actually got to the port. And of course, of course, the, the president of the Nigerian port, you know him now, right? It's a government unto himself, the National Assembly, can't even summon him, how powerful he can be. I decided that, oh, you have to pay 35 million as duties. Now, who is responsible for actually informing um, the Ministry of Finance that this is actually a gift and it's not, you are not supposed to pay duties on this ABC? It's the Minister of Sport, he did not do it. And then it became a big topic. Essentially, that tells you that he doesn't even have a grip. He doesn't know his job. Is incompetent, that's the word. Uh, clearly from that point, even before I go into the planning for the Olympics and what happened during the Olympics, it shows clearly that that man is incompetent. The second thing, if you remember the budget for this year, remember there was this big talk around clearing the stadium in Abuja for almost 100 million. If you recall that, that story, he's still the same minister. Uh, this same minister was the one that actually started that rubbish in his budget. If you look at the budget for the Ministry of Sports, you will cry. Now, uh, in terms of planning for Olympic, Olympics is something that you don't just jump into. It's something that you lay out a plan, you pick your sport, and then you build towards it. It's more, you can't, you cannot go into an Olympic and expect miracles to happen. It doesn't happen. Like in football, one way or the other, we may be lucky, but we've not been lucky for long. Uh, but in sport, individual sport that people are serious about, you achieve absolutely nothing if you don't prepare. So in terms of planning for the Olympics, it was shambolic. I mean, that's the classical definition of what people, that's how the economy of Nigeria is run. It's just the manifestation. Young people, athletics and all these people, they were neglected for how many years? For five years. Other than prepare for the Olympic, they were neglected, they were allowed to go there. If you go to the national stadium in Lagos or there, you come to the one. If the one in Abuja had been shut down permanently, you can't even enter. Uh, if you go to the one in Lagos, that place, the Indian hems blowing everywhere. That place, in fact, if you if you go there and you come out of that place without people emptying your pocket, you are lucky. So the stadium had become centers for gangs and robbers to actually stay. And this is the man in charge of that place, right? He refuses, he's the one in charge of that place. That place has become an, a very unhealthy environment for athletes to actually train and then prepare. So essentially, what do you expect them to do? So they sit in their sitting room and then they prepare for the Olympics. Essentially, that's what we have. So we get the results we get, that's one. Two, I mean, aside from the planning issue that we failed in every, in every part, how can you divine it? I, I like dissecting the budget of Nigeria to look closely at what I can assure you that budgetary provisions for procuring sport equipment, it's bigger when you look at the presidency across board than it is when you compare it to the Ministry of Sport. The Ministry of Sport doesn't care about sporting equipment. That's not their business. Their business is other things. But when you go to uh, presidency, you go to this, you see big, big budget for procuring um, sports equipment, of course, to keep the politicians healthy. That's one bit of it. Now, during the build up to the preparation of this Olympic, this Olympic would have happened last year. Uh, the whole thing was shambolic from the kids uh, to what is the next one? Even the travel plans and everything was horrible. Everything was horrible. In fact, there was a time that they were doing a race in, in Lagos here. They could not even capture time. They, so a whole lot of things were so wrong that I, I showed absolutely no interest. Whatsoever. I can assure you that I did not watch one because it's a national embarrassment uh, to actually put myself and then watch somebody that you've not put anything and expect miracle from those people. In fact, getting a silver and a bronze itself is a miracle to me because it shouldn't have happened. And if you look closely at those people that got that, they did not train in Nigeria. They were not based in Nigeria. That's the truth. Across board, the ones that were based in Nigeria have been neglected totally. Now, during the Olympic, of course, again, this somebody superintending over, over his only job, one, you are given a job as a minister to coordinate Nigeria's sports, um, sports activity. You feel blatantly in everything. And so it's not even a question 
of even him resigning. I mean, in same plants, he shouldn't make it. These are people that should not even be so close. They should not be close to the, I mean, they should not be close to the office of government. I mean, of government itself. There are people that should be blacklisted. And if possible, the National Assembly or the State Assembly should even bar them for failures. I mean, I don't know what, I mean, if you run a company and then you have an incompetent person coming in there, what do you do? You fire the person, aside from firing the person. If somebody writes you, recommend, do I, I mean, if the person, if you're a good employer and then you want to employ somebody, the ideal thing for you to do is to contact uh, the organization that the person works for. And you should ask the person, is this person competent enough to work for my organization? And then they should write another recommendation that this person is totally incompetent in everything he has done. Now I heard that he wants to contest. Um, he wants to contest for governor for your state. I pity the people for your state if they give him any any chance to even become a local government chairman within that domain. And then it's so sad that some people that should be journalists that should be holding him accountable for his failures are even enabling him. What a disappointment! Now what happens after the Olympic? What you will hear, I can assure you, knowing Buhari and his people is going to, of course, is a political cliche. You will see more like persecuting those athletes that actually voice their, of course, voice their, that we're making a little bit. They are going to persecute them. It's not prosecute them. They are going to persecute them. I can assure you that will happen. That's the tradition in Nigeria. And that has happened time and time and time over and over again. So it's a disappointment. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> if you want to know whether this man is competent or not, just dive into his budget and you'll see a lot of issues there. I, I can read them out if you wish I read them out. It's a disappointment totally. I mean, he's been there for two years now. Uh, the one that was there initially, we thought he was incompetent. Now we saw the one that, before in Nigeria, we keep lowering the bars of government. We've taken it to another level. It's a, in fact, I'm disappointed in the old, in the old thing and I, I'm not even sure I want to watch anything Nigerian sport again. Thank you, Samuel. I think you've highlighted all the, a lot of the issues. I, I, it's been building up, like you've rightly said. Uh, there was a time where they had the sports event and the timers did not time the athletes correctly. So all the races were invalid. So it, it's truly shocking. But to Phoenix, and I know a lot of people have said uh, Sunday Dari should resign, um, but does Buhari bear any responsibility, responsibility for this, or is this just a Sunday Dari problem, Phoenix? You know, I, I find myself, um, I mean, holding holding my fire against Buhari on this one, beyond the fact that, of course, he appointed the chap, so you can say, I mean, I mean, you, you can't you can't appoint uh, you can't appoint incompetent people and expect to to get a a, a positive outcome. Um, to the extent that this is his second sports minister, the first one was no better. I mean, that was uh, uh, what was his first? I forget his first name now. Dalong, who was I mean, you, you will have thought that as bad as that guy was that we couldn't get any worse. And then we get a Sunday diary who seems to, to be keen to how to do uh, Dalong's performance. But, I, but, but for me, it's, I don't know, and, and Atiku has said so much about it, but you know, we've had, so, we've had a history of administrative failure in sports in Nigeria that is, it, 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 it saddens me because it's, it's that one part where Nigerians' um, God-given gifts for, of athleticism, of, of, you know, of people willing to do so much amidst so many constraints, I mean, so many challenges that they, they, that they manage to, uh, to be successful of their own rights in spite of rather than with the support of their government, but we continued to have their administrators let them down. And it didn't start today, it didn't start on that where we have seen it, we've seen it over such a long period of time. But this particular one, it's galling in the sense that, I think what also brought it home to me was you could see, you could now begin to see the fruits of this administrative failure over a long period of time. Because in, in a lot of the events, especially the athletic events, we could see other Nigerians bearing 
um, you know, wearing the colors of other countries. I mean, there was a particular semi-final of the 100 meters that I watched. There were four Nigerians, four or five Nigerians lined up in an eight-man race. And <laughs> only one of them was wearing the green, white, green. You know, people are, are beginning to vote with their feet. People will not leave their careers to, to these incompetent people who are determined to squeeze the life out of an area that gives spontaneous joy, an area that has, I mean, sports has been that one thing that perhaps has kept us sane, has given us our moments of national unity. You know, we find joy when our athletes, our footballers and all those guys do well. I remember the, the Nigerian basketball team and, and the fervor that was generated when they beat the US in one of these warm-up matches. I mean, we started hyping them up and, you know, but then you think back to the fact that, I mean, they traveled and, they call, and there was this long issue back and forth with customs that seized the uniforms of, of the Nigerian basketball team. We're not talking about seizing something of private individuals. You know that these people are going to represent the country, whatever it may be. And these were, cost, these were um, uniforms that were donated to them. It wasn't as if, you know, and then you see the issue with, 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 with Puma, you see, I mean, the, the incompetence that leads to 10 athletes or so being disqualified because the Athletics Federation of Nigeria failed them, failed to, uh, you know, inform of the, of the rules around testing and make sure that, you know, you just, and then you find a, a Nigerian athlete washing his, his, his uh, kit so that he could wait the next night. Why? Because they only gave him one. And what led to that? There was some bruhaha over, over who should kit the, the athletes. Why? Because as Nigerian government officials are want to do, once one new administration replaces the other, they always accuse the previous one of uh, corruption. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But the previous one had signed a deal with, with Puma and, uh, the one, and the ones that came in said, oh, that deal was not signed properly. This guy's pocketed money, blah, blah, blah. And all the kits that Puma provided, they refused to let them wear it and instead signed another deal with some local sponsor that could only give at least one kit per person. So you see, all, all, I mean, it's, 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 it's emblematic of the administrative failure that we've had, no doubt about it. I mean, Solomon Dalong, I, I think that's his name, and, and Sunday Dari are clearly two of the worst ministers of sports that we've had and to have two of the worst i mean be appointed by buhari in an area where which also shows that he he doesn't really care we've always known that the youth have suffered under this particular president if he's not insulting them he's creating conditions that have led to 42 percent unemployment or he's sending his soldiers to go and shoot and kill them at the lucky target so i mean why why should we think that he would give them a minister of sports that will actually allow them to do well and be successful? So the more I think about it, even though, I, I mean, originally I would, have, I would have said, look, Sunday Daddy is an adult and should own this himself and all of the other people. But again, you always have to hold people accountable. Buhari appointed them. He has, he has appointed a, 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 a hopeless person the first time second time he has given us a poor person surely he should also take part of part of the blame for for consistently you know refusing to put square pegs in square holes and make sure that nigeria's sports where our youth find opportunity to do great things to represent this country and more importantly to provide a better future for themselves and their families that it doesn't become uh, I mean, this farce, this this rubbish that that happened in this Olympics, you know, stunting the future of a lot of people and just, you know, imagine this particular Olympics that took five years to get there, right? Because the pandemic forced them into this year. People prepared for five years to go and represent the country and themselves at the pinnacle of their sport, and they get undone by administrative failure because some idiots in, in, the, in the Federation could not get their work right. And, and they go there on that, on, on that, on that provided for and, and all of that because 
some some ego battle or some ridiculous thing that uh, the minister and his acolytes are. So it's it's a shame, really, but it's emblematic of the entire country. We see where we are. We see we see all the all the things that have fallen to dis decay and disrepair. So, I mean, particularly over the last I mean six years. So it's it's no surprise, really. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Felix, for your uh, you launched a scathing attack on the sports administrators in Nigeria. I, I too. Uh, I share your frustrations because sometimes I just wonder, like, if you're if you're in charge of a, a unit, you're in charge of testing, you're in charge of providing kits, shouldn't you be concerned that you've not done your job? So I don't understand how these guys go to sleep and don't worry, don't seem to be bothered that they haven't done their jobs and they have the uh, the audacity to turn up to the Olympics to want to claim Esther Code, stay in nice hotels when they've literally done nothing. Yes. That's a great, great point. It's a great, great point about how they feel. I mean, how they feel as human beings having failed. It, it's like people don't feel, I mean, they don't feel that shame, that personal ridicule that, oops, I dropped the ball here, it's on me. I don't know where, where that was lost. Well, clearly, of course, we know lack of accountability creates that. Well, even you as a, as a human being, you, you absolutely agree with you. I mean, the, the, how do they go to bed? I mean, Atiku was just talking about Sunday Diary printing posters and wanting to run for public office. Personal shame should make you resign. Talk less of even thinking that you are fit to go and run for another office. For governor, for that matter. <laughs> well, well, I think in, in his defense, I don't, I don't know if that's a defense, but Buhari provided over record recession and still thought he was qualified for a second term. So uh, he's obviously learning from from his boss, but our, our time is up. Uh, we've had we've got over I think over an hour and fifteen minutes. But I must thank all of you. First of all, thank you to our, our two guests. Thank you, Samuel. Uh, thank you, William. Uh, unfortunately, you couldn't participate as much because your Wi-Fi. I think you need to switch from your provider. I don't know if you're using a uh, Glow. We need to switch from Glow to to somebody else. But uh, but thank you, William and Samuel, for joining us. Uh, thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting the podcast. Uh, thank you to our listeners. I apologize. We apologize. I know many of you were complaining that uh, we didn't host one. I, myself, I finished apologize again. I was away in, in Nigeria. That, that's why. But I'm back now. We're back now. So uh, we'll deliver some more. So until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everybody. Thanks, Michael. And, and thanks, Antiku and uh, William, for joining us. Um, and thank you, listeners. I mean, we, we saw your feedback, and I, I, I promise it spurred us on to, to continue to, to do this. And uh, uh, we, we promise to continue taking it forward. And again, I won't go without reminding us of, of uh, the Lekki massacre, the end to our struggle, which this Abakiari thing even brings more to the fore and shows why we need to continue, you know, keeping this on the front burner and just calling it out so that, I mean, this rogue cops and all this hopeless administrators that we have don't get away with, with, with what they've done. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.